This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hi, friends. You're listening to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I have a real treat for you today on this week's episode. Have you ever seen the movie Air Force One? It's one of my favorites, but apparently that's not how it is in real life, according to my guest today, Francesca Chambers. She's the White House correspondent for the Daily Mail and has spent many hours aboard Air Force One, on the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton, and asking questions of both Barack Obama and Donald Trump in her role for the past four years. She's got the fire in her belly to do her job well and can be seen weekly everywhere from CNN to Fox News. Today's interview is pretty fascinating, and I'm just lucky to say I knew Francesca way back when, before she was flying high on Air Force One. Enjoy this big scoop of an interview. All right, Francesca, thank you so much for taking time to do this today. How was your Christmas? Oh, it was it was really wonderful. I, uh, I went to the gym because I was trying to be a real go-getter on Christmas, and um, I, I got a frantic call from my bureau telling me that the president was in the Oval Office taking questions from reporters. So, <laughs> but that's uh, that's pretty that's uh, pretty par for the course if you cover the White House. Yeah, that'll that'll make you stop working out immediately and, <laughs> and try to figure oh, out how to get to work. I was absolutely that person who ran outside, you know, with my phone, pulled out my computer in the lobby of the gym, and um, wrote two stories. <laughs> how long it does great it, Christmas? <laughs> how long does it take you to write a story? Well, it depends on what the topic is. When the president's talking about something like border security, um, and then he sends a couple tweets afterwards, then I'll be war- working on the same story sometimes all day. If it's really a big topic or something like troops pulling the troops out of Syria, and other people are. Uh, making comments that feed into that story, but other things are just one-off stories that take about an hour to finish all together. So it really just depends. Okay. For those of you that are listening, you, most of you probably don't know Francesca, but she usually does get right to the point as she just has at the beginning of this interview. I started with, um, I started with Christmas and how my Christmas day was. Yeah. I mean, when you're, when you are part of the White House press corps, I I'm sure that there are not a lot of down moments. (laughs) Um, but I want to, I do want to do a little bit of background, um, on you. Now we know you're from Kansas and you are a White House press correspondent for the Daily Mail. You're married to Michael, and you can be seen on network news on a regular basis. What else should we know about Francesca Chambers? How would you describe yourself? <laughs> All right, well, not getting straight to the point about White House stuff. Uh, you can add in there that we also have two adorable cats, Liam and Emily, and they're the life of every party that we have, <laughs> literally. People literally come over to see Liam and Emily. They ask where they are and if they can play with them. And we're like, what are we, chopped liver over here? So um, so we have a, a great life in Washington, D.C., as you mentioned, married to my husband, Michael. And, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything else that's that's big. He's, well, he's sitting next to me right now. I'm looking at him like, is there anything else I should add? <laughs> hey, Michael, I'm glad that you're sitting in on this interview. It's always great to, to well, I don't see you, but it's always <laughs> great to see you when I see Francesca in D.C. <laughs> As I works in public relations, but that's not why he's sitting in on the interview. Just happens to be around. <laughs> well, as we were talking about before you got on, you're shopping. You're doing post-Christmas Day coat shopping so that you can yeah. have a variety of colors to wear when you're reporting from outside the White House in in DC, right? Yes. So this is a really unique problem that I didn't know anything about until I started doing TV hits for Daily Mail TV outside the White House. And as you mentioned, I'm also on the other networks as well, is that in the wintertime, no one actually gets to see these outfits that you wear, right? If you're doing stand-ups outside and reporting the news outside the White House, all they're going to see is your coat and your scarf, more or less. And so you can't be wearing the same coat every single day. Otherwise, it'll really look monotonous. And so I was saying that it's a really great time to take um, advantage of these after Christmas sales so that you could go out and get some really nice, colorful coats uh, for a really low price. I'm a big bargain shopper. Yes. As I would imagine 
most people listening to this are. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's when you, when you get into this career field and you're, you didn't maybe realize that you were going to be on TV so much, but that is, um, one of the challenges for journalists that are reporting in front of a camera. And it's something that a lot of people probably don't think about. No, I majored in print journalism. I didn't really think that I would ever get into TV, but that's where this path has taken me. And I really enjoy doing it. Absolutely love doing it. But yes, there are certainly things that I just had no idea about that I've, that I've had to learn uh, about reporting outside uh, of the White House, including having many different color coats. <laughs> yes. Well, so you, you went from, did you grow up in Kansas? I did. I did grow up in Kansas and I went to the University of Kansas and majored in journalism there and political science. And so that was really lovely. Kansas is a great place to grow up in, but I love living on the East Coast. There's so much that you can do in Washington, D.C. And my job often takes me to New York a lot as well. And New York is a great city with so many great museums as well. And of course, now that the president is, uh, he spends a lot of his time on the weekends in Palm Beach, we get to travel to Florida and all over the world with the president too. So if you like to travel, it's a great job. Lots of opportunities to travel. Okay. So you've just brought up one of the things I really wanted to talk about, which is that, so you went from Kansas to flying on Air Force One. Um, Number one, how do you go from one to the other? And then I have a couple more questions about when you get to do the Air Force One thing, but give us a little background on your career and how you ended up coming to Washington, D.C. and being in this position that you've been in now, which you've been in for the past four years. Absolutely. Well, I always knew that this is what I wanted to do, but getting there is really, it's all dependent on your circumstances. And this is something I really like to try and tell young people. I was one of those people who had a direct career path in mind. Like I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. And then this is how I'm going to get here. And that's not really how it works in real life. You have to take the opportunities that are in front of you. And sometimes those opportunities are a little bit scary and they make you a little nervous because it's not what you intended to do. But I can personally say that if you work really hard and then you keep your eye on the prize, the ultimate goal of what you want to do then it, then the things in between often uh, don't matter. They're, you know, when one door shuts and another door opens, I, I really do believe that. And so finally one day a door opened and the Daily Mail called me and they said, we're launching a Washington DC bureau. Would you be interested in doing that? And at that point, I didn't know a ton about them because they had just launched US-based operations people who don't know, they have a major, they had a major presence in Europe, but it just launched US-based operations. We're just launching a political team in the United States. Do I want to come join it? They had done a lot of entertainment to that point, not a ton of politics when it comes to US-based politics, obviously, because that's why they were launching a political bureau. But I took a big leap of faith and said, wow, this is really something that I could turn into whatever I want it to be. And I knew I wanted to cover the White House. So I said, can I cover the White House? And they were essentially like, we have no infrastructure. You can cover whatever you want. (laughs) So okay, which is really funny now because in the Trump era, there's so much interest in covering the White House. You could never walk into any news outlet and say, I like to cover the White House now. They would like laugh you out of the building because it's a line. But I was very, very fortunate. And so I took that opportunity and worked with another person who still works there as well, David, to build up that bureau and then create it into something so that when there was a presidential campaign, we were both out on the campaign trail. When there was this opportunity to cover President Trump after he was elected, I had already been covering Barack Obama for two years. And so had my foot in that door already had known known some of the people who came into the White House just from reporting over the years, but also had that experience of covering the White House so I didn't just show up on day one and, and be trying to find where the restroom is. <laughs> and, been, and you came from working for another paper, though. You were working for the Washington Examiner and, and Red Alert Politics, which is their kind of their youth-focused section. Right. And that was also a a fantastic and amazing opportunity. And while I was there, I met a lot of the folks who now are working in the Trump administration or close to the president. So it was a really great sourcing opportunity for me, which is what I meant by um, sometimes along the way, right? You do various different things that maybe you didn't necessarily expect to do. And for me, though, it has helped me immensely to have built those relationships at that time. So now when I'm covering the White House, it's not as if um, a lot of 
these people who I'm now working with don't know me at all. They've known me for years. And so it's also, that's also been something that's really remarkable for a very long time. I couldn't understand why some journalists were very well sourced. And I felt like I'm a hardworking journalist. Like how do they do it? And that's something I realized more recently. It just takes years. It just takes years of building those relationships. And then one day you'll wake up and say, Oh gosh, I want to do a story on this and I know all the right people to call. Right. Exactly. It's, I, of course, I always think of Bob Novak, the, uh, <laughs> probably the most famous journalist out of DC. It was just like 50 years of him building sources and he could get the stories that no one else could. Um, how has it, I want to ask you of this. You worked two years when Barack Obama was president, two years now, uh, President Trump being president. How are things different as a member of the press? Are they different at all? Um, do you have you noticed changes? If can you tell us anything about that? They are different now than they were, but to be fair, covering the last two years of an incumbent president, he had been there for six years roughly when I came in, and the first two years of a new president are really very different mm -hmm. just because just because they have different agendas. Barack Obama was winding down and trying to protect his legacy. And President Donald Trump is just winding up and trying to complete his campaign promises. So I would say that those are the two main differences. There's just a difference in energy, the difference in their priorities. And also during that time, I will say the last two years of Barack Obama's presidency, then the presidential campaign started too. So there were many of us who were out on the campaign trail and I spent a lot of time covering Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. I was an embed on Hillary Clinton's campaign plane. And so that was another tremendous experience. I'm so glad I had. So the other person that you work with, was he the one that was on Trump's plane then? Yes. Yes. He was the one who had been on Donald Trump's plane, but I had covered the White House previous to that. And again, knew a lot of the people who were working for Donald Trump from, from, their prior stints at other conservative organizations or whatnot. So I didn't come in to this administration without any sourcing. So did you guys get to pick which one you got or was it kind of like roll the dice? <laughs> well, I think that it go. I don't know. It, it always depends on what's happening at the time. I had originally been covering Republicans, actually. Remember when there were like 17 Republicans running? There were yes. so many people. That was so, that was really interesting to go to all those campaign announcements. So I was originally on Republicans because Hillary Clinton didn't really announce for a while. Uh, there wasn't as many, many Democrats running. And then ultimately in there, we decided that I would cover Hillary Clinton and that he would cover Donald Trump. And it was really interesting to cover a woman presidential candidate. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's very, it is very different covering a woman presidential candidate than it had been to cover any of the men who were running. She, she obviously made her campaign very much about being a woman and women's issues. And so that's another experience I'm really glad I had was to cover a woman who was running for office. What, is there anything else like in particular that you would say stood out as, as covering a woman for president? And, and also, uh, just curious, how close did you get to her? Did you get to have one-on-one -on -one time with her? Did you find anything about her surprising? I'm just really curious what it's like being on the inside of a campaign. So she actually came back to talk to us on the plane a decent amount of the time. She would sometimes just come back to say hello in the morning. It's not always things that were reported in the press. They weren't always story stories on her press conferences, but sometimes just say, just to say, hi, how are you guys? The first day that we were on the campaign plane to just to kind of welcome us. Um, sometimes she would come back though, while we were in the middle of flights and she would do kind of like you see the president does now who'll come back and talk to reporters on the plane. Well, sometimes she would come back and she would talk to us on the plane. And that's very different for people who covered Donald Trump when he was running because the reporters were not on the same plane as him. They were on a chase plane and sometimes he would just take off without them. <laughs> and so that wasn't really the case with us. We were on the same exact plane with her. So anywhere that she went, we went. And some of those days can be very, very, very long when there are multiple events in one day and you're flying all the way across the country and back. But again, it's a really cool opportunity to have had in life. So, so why was it like that? Why did Trump have a different plane? Just because he had his own plane? He was flying on his personal plane. He was oh. flying on the Trump branded plane at the time. And so now he flies on Air Force One and it has a press section. But at the time he was he was flying on his own personal plane. It wasn't really outfitted that way. And he never did move to one of those traditional campaign style planes where Mitt Romney, right, John McCain, anyone who had ran for president before eventually moves to a campaign style plane. 
but he already had a plane. So was he, uh, was he criticized for doing that? I wonder, I, I don't remember that, but I know obviously he has kind of a beef with the press sometimes. What was a little interesting about it was to that point, he had been the one who had pointed out correctly that Hillary Clinton hadn't for some 200 days or so had a press conference or spoken to the press or anything. But at the point we, when we moved onto the plane, then Hillary Clinton regularly came back and took questions from the press or just, or just spoke to the press off the record. And then it was Donald Trump who was on that separate plane. So he didn't have really press conferences or talk to the reporters anymore unless he was doing one-on-one interviews. So things completely turned around as we got closer to the general election. Yeah. So when you're flying around the country with Hillary Clinton all, you know, during the campaign, what does your day look like? Are you making three stops a day? And when you do stop, do you get out and you're like, are you working, working, working? Or is it kind of a bursts of work and then a lot of downtime? As listeners might remember, we didn't make all that many stops a day. <laughs> couple places, couple places you missed maybe, or she missed. Couple places the plane didn't go, but um, <laughs> generally speaking, we so we would get up in the morning and we would go to the airport. You have to get swept by secret security, so they take all or secret service, so they take all your stuff. They have to to sweep it to make sure it's all okay, and then you get it back, and then you board the plane. And some days they would they would say, "Okay, she wants to talk to you," so they'd have a little press conference right in the airport hangar or just outside in front of her plane. Uh, other days we'd get on the plane and we'd fly to our first destination. Sometimes she would do a rally and then a fundraiser in between, and then a rally. So sometimes we would go back to the plane and wait wait for her while she did some sort of fundraising opportunity. But there was never when you say, "Was there?" A lot of downtime, not really, because you're always writing. You're always trying to talk to officials that are with her that were on the plane and try and get information from them for stories. If we've just finished a rally, even even if it's a two-hour flight back, you've got to be filing that entire time stories. And it's the same thing now flying on Air Force One. There's really no no downtime. You're flying with the president and you're just working, working, working the entire time. And when you're eating, you're trying to eat really fast because one day he came back while we were in the <laughs> middle of lunch. And, and you're just panicking. You're like, oh my gosh, I've got food on my tray and I'm not finished. How am I going to jump up and hold my recorder to his face and start asking him some questions? And so I remember one reporter when that happened said he was never, ever going to eat the lunch on Air Force One <laughs> again because the president comes back. He's in the middle of eating his lunch. And that's sort of, so you want to eat really fast. <laughs> so yeah, so you, you should, you need to have like just snackable things that you can just, you know, open with one hand and put down very easily. Eat before you get there. Definitely eat before you get there. Or that too. Okay, one more question about the campaign trail. Was there anything about Hillary Clinton that you found surprising or something that maybe a lot of people don't realize about her? I'm just kind of wondering an inside information about her that, you know, maybe is a positive thing that we don't know. Well, touching on what I was saying before, because some of the times she would come back and talk to us, it wasn't always on the record. So it wasn't as if all the time she was coming to speak to us, it was necessarily something that was being written about at the time. Right. And, and so I do think that, uh, in retrospect, see, now I've had two years to really look back on this now. Uh, she did come back and at least say, hello, how are you? Things like that with regularity at that time. But she, I mean, she wasn't before she wasn't before we were all on the same plane with her. That's absolutely true. But, uh, she was, she, she came back and one time she brought candy she oh. brought everyone one time. Yeah. So that was really nice. Did you ever see Bill? Was he around? Not on the campaign plane. He did some bus tours and I went on a couple bus tours with him across Iowa and, and some other places like that. So I did see him, but it wasn't because he was on that plane. They deployed him in different places they, so that they could cover more ground. And they would do the same thing with Chelsea Clinton. They would send her to rallies in different areas mm-hmm. than Clinton was in. So I did actually travel with him a couple times. And yeah, we were on bus tours. So Okay, got it. Okay. <laughs> well, I will transition back to present day and back to my original question long ago about Air Force One. So my best understanding of Air Force One is literally the Harrison Ford movie. I'm sure you've seen it. <laughs> but I'm sure it's not like that in real life. What Tell us about it. Like, what is it like to be on Air Force One? I mean, it just seems like such a surreal experience. And I have seen all of your pictures, you know, kind of traveling around the world. Tell us what that experience is like. 
Well, none of none of the movies I think or television shows are are particularly accurate about Air Force One or the White House. Thankfully, because a lot of those times they're under attack. So yeah, yeah usually. <laughs> Like all of them, I don't understand why that is. Um, so, but no, it's been it, it's it's first of all, we don't have Wi-Fi in the press cabin. That's oh maybe my something. Gosh. Interesting. That's that's interesting. Right. I had no idea about that. There's no internet in the press cabin on Air Force One. And so there's a bigger plane and a smaller plane. And when you're on the bigger plane, you can at least be on your personal hotspot or your phone up until, you know, it's wheels up and, and Air Force One is in the air. Uh, which is good because if you're coming back from something and you're important, you're trying to file on deadline and you know you're not going to have internet for the next hour, hour and a half. It's very important in that time. That 10 minutes can be everything in terms of filing. Uh, but when you're on the smaller plane, as we call it, then the moment you walk inside, it's a dead zone. Like you can't get a signal at all the second you step inside the plane. And so even if we're sitting on the tarmac for another 10 minutes, it doesn't really matter because you can't get any incoming or outgoing. So if you're running from a rally and there's only 10 minutes between the rally site and Air Force One, that can be really challenging to try and file in that amount of time. <laughs> yeah, I would and say. A lot of time what we'll do, times what we'll do is we'll file, you know, bare basics to get out the information but even in the rally you're thinking the whole time like okay if you know that this is the line this is the news you're trying to file that in the middle of the rally and say i'll come back to the rest of the stuff later because i can transcribe that i can write about that in the hour that we're in the dead zone on the plane but i think that's probably something that most people don't know about the press cabin on air force i can only imagine how everyone is just like wigging out to turn on their phones when once you get to a place where you can especially as reporters have you ever touched down and you know finally were able to turn on your phone and there was some kind of crazy breaking news that you hadn't known about for 10 or 15 minutes time all of the time because sometimes too he'll talk to reporters out on the south lawn of the white house and then he'll come from the from there on marine one to get on air force one and we'll get some of the news out but it's only roughly 10 minutes between when he leaves and when he gets to Air Force One. So if he's talking to reporters for 15, 20 minutes, you can't possibly know everything that he said. So that can be very challenging if you haven't seen the video or all the audio because you don't know what was asked yet and answered. Yeah. And that, so that's one thing. But two, sometimes there have been major breaking news stories that uh, haven't seen in the air because we don't have the internet and you're touching down and you're scrambling to read it because there's sometimes small windows after he lands places where he'll either take questions or you can run and get very close to him and shout something at the present and you want to make sure that you get a comment on whatever that breaking news is but it can be very challenging when you don't have the internet you're absolutely right okay I feel like I have so many questions but let me first ask you what does it look like on the inside of the plane what are the seats like how does it feel what's the kind of the vibe that you get the two planes are are different and they're one they're both getting older which is why they're getting replaced actually there's a contract out right now to to, to replace the both of the Air Force ones that he uses but so uh, in one of them there's two seats it's just you and someone else and it's very spacious and the other one the smaller plane it's a little more packed and there are three people per aisle so it's a lot like being on um, a commercial flight where if you're at the window you can it's really hard to get up and get out. <laughs> to do anything at all so it's, it's very much like that but there's there's also on the smaller plane what I like about it is there are TVs on the backs of the seats and so we can watch the news going ah. back to the internet situation right so we can play in and we can watch the news and so that also helps us to keep track of what's going on and um, typically we like to turn it to the channel we think the president is most likely to be watching because sometimes he also likes to tweet in the air and we can't <laughs> see the tweet until we land but it's helpful if he tweets about something for us to be like you know he must be talking about this because a segment on this aired while we were in the air oh my gosh so he has internet but you don't yes he has the internet but we don't have the internet so he can tweet and we will find out about things sometimes that's that's the difficult part about turning your phone on is sometimes he'll have tweeted four or five times in a flight and you're scrambling to read through all the things that he sent <laughs> So I'm wondering how they turn off your Wi-Fi but keep his on in the air. And why do they do that? So, Is that a security thing? Security thing. I believe that it's a security thing. I'm not entirely certain of all the details of it, but there is a there's a security measure that limits the the access to Wi-Fi in the air. But naturally the president of the United States 
has access to the to the yeah. internet in the air Makes and he sense. can and the white house can send out statements as well to reporters on things that we also sometimes don't see until we're on the ground so. okay okay got it so you you mentioned a couple times about you know oh you want to get up and ask him a question if he unexpectedly comes in the room how do you i mean do you are you, do you have like a list of questions, running list of questions that you want to ask him? And then how likely is it that you'll actually get to basically get up in his face and get your question asked? It's, it's really hard to say because sometimes he'll come back unexpectedly, like I said, and you, you don't expect it at all. And other days you kind of think, okay, there's a lot of news going on today. Surely, surely he's going to come back and con on this. And then he doesn't. And so you have to be ready for anything. And sometimes it's not him who'll come back. Sometimes senior White House officials will come back and they'll talk on or off the record as well, or the White House press secretary. So a number of people could come back and talk during the flight. But yes, I do keep a running list of questions to ask the president if I know that I'm going to be on the plane that day, because there's a limited number of seats and we're all in a rotation and you don't get that many opportunities to be on the plane. But you're also the eyes and the ears of the entire White House press corps when you're on that plane in the print seat. And so you have to make sure that you are reading the news, that you're up to date and you're asking about the news of the day because your colleagues have expectations if he comes back and then major news has happened that morning, but you weren't prepared for it and you didn't get a comment from the president and you're one of only a couple of reporters who's going to get to speak to him that day. How many pe- How many reporters are on Air Force One at the same time? So there's cameramen and photographers, and then there are the wires, which are Reuters, AP, and Bloomberg, and they're on the plane all the time. And then there are a TV seat that rotates between the major networks, and then there's the what we call the print seat and another, another seat that's like the print seat. And there are news outlets that rotate through those seats. And it is only about 15 in um, the larger the larger rotation. So that's what I mean by you're not getting to be there that often. And even among those 15, it's not always the same person from your news outlet. It could be a different White House correspondent or another reporter on the plane. So those are really often rare opportunities, uh, unless you're some of the wires. The wires, because they're on the plane every single time, they have more opportunities. So you really have to make those opportunities count, which is why you mentioned the photos, which is why I always try to take photos and really make the most of all those opportunities, because you don't know when the next one's going to come. So how, how far advance notice do you get when you're going to get that opportunity? You can kind of judge because it is a rotation. Yeah. And so you your places. So I know that if the president travels within the next two weeks, you know, I'm likely to go sometimes. But sometimes it comes up very unexpectedly. There'll be a trip that we did not know was coming and they'll say the president's going here and he's going on Tuesday or Monday. And so you have to be prepared to travel. So I'm always prepared. I always try to be prepared when I know that we're next in line to have my questions ready to go and be re- and be prepared, be ready to travel, which is what reporters learned this past week. And the president um, went to Iraq very suddenly is that you have to have, you got to have your passport and you got to have a go bag all at all times because you never know. Yeah. A friend of mine was just telling me that she was listening to NPR politics and she said that one of the White House reporters was on that an interview and she said it was very sudden and they weren't allowed to tell anybody. And it was, you know, very obviously secretive because they wanted it to be a surprise for the troops. Um, Tell us about some of the places you've been. I know you went on a big trip to Asia with, with the president. Where else have you been and where in Asia did you go? Okay. So Asia, you're right. That was so massive. That was a five nation tour. And I did three countries and my colleague did three countries because we couldn't possibly each do all five stops. I mean, that was, it was, the president was gone for, I think, 14 days, somewhere around thereabouts at the time. It's two weeks, two weeks that I was gone wow. <laughs> on this trip. I know it was, but it was spectacular. We started in Japan and I was on that leg and he went and spoke to the troops there. And then we went on, he, he went to South Korea after that, but I went to China to wait for him to go to China. My colleague went to South Korea and in China, I had already planned to stay back a day or two and then fly to Vietnam while my colleague went to the first stop in Vietnam. And I really lucked out because Melania Trump decided to stay back in China a day as well. And she went to the Beijing Zoo and she saw the pandas and she went to the Great Wall. And I was one of the only reporters who hadn't moved on to the next leg. And so I was able to go with her that day. And I had never been to the Great Wall before, ever in my life. 
Um, and uh, it wasn't necessarily somewhere I, I thought I'd ever get to. I, I knew I wanted to, but right. How are you going to get to the Great Wall of China? Right. And I got to go to the Great Wall because Melania Trump went to the Great Wall. And I, I guess I don't, I don't really know what I thought was going to happen. I guess I thought we were going to walk up the wall. Maybe there were some stairs. I don't know. Or drive. I didn't realize <laughs> you had to get up there by gondola. That's cool. Yeah, except for if you're terrified of heights. So what did you do? Just close your eyes and pray? <laughs> yes, yes, I actually did out loud. I was, I was, <laughs> singing, I was singing like gospel out loud in the Oh my gosh. <laughs> because I was so terrified um, at the time. I, but, but you had to get in, right? Like there was no time for me to sit there and panic and say, no, I can't yeah, do this, right? Yeah. It just was. I'm like, no, no, no. See, this isn't, this isn't happening today for me. And they're like, the first lady is going to be here in like 30 minutes. Like you have to get on this gondola right now. And <laughs> I, I was very scared, but I got in the gondola and they advised me just not to look like behind me. Don't look down. You know, yeah. they're like, look straight ahead. It's going to be just fine. Um, and afterwards I posted a, a photo of it on Instagram and because of the situation, there weren't a lot of opportunities to communicate with my husband, some of the legs of the trip. And he saw the the photo on Instagram and he was shocked. He was like, I can't believe you got in a gondola. Any <laughs> <laughs> interaction with her at all? Yeah, we got, she, she said hello to us very briefly and thanked us for a time. I will say the most difficult part when you're traveling overseas with the president and you, if, especially if you don't have a lot of experience doing it or the first lady is knowing when it's okay to interrupt them or speak mm, to them. Mm -hmm. Because at one point when we were in China on the earlier part of the trip, I was in the forbidden city. And I was pooling the present, the poolers, the person who goes along with the president, because not everyone can fit in there. And they write, you know, they tell everyone what happened. And he was walking with Xi Jinping and they were on a tour of the Forbidden City. And right, I wanted to shout questions. I had things to ask. But if he's walking on a, a, a tour of the Forbidden City with the president of China, you really have to hold back and say, as they're having a conversation strolling, is it really appropriate time for me as a reporter to interrupt that conversation and start trying to talk and, to the president? And so you didn't do it then? No, I didn't do it then because uh, he, the president wasn't looking at us. He wasn't inviting us to make a comment to him. And, I, you know, it's very hard to know when when to ask questions and when not, to not ask questions but interrupting him while he was meeting the president of china what is the forbidden city this was in the forbidden city and they were on a private tour of the forbidden city which we also got to visit because i was on this trip which was well, what, also amazing for those that don't know what is the forbidden city though Okay, so the the Forbidden City is normally open to the public now, and the public can take tours of it. We were in some private areas of the Forbidden City. So we see people um, on TV um, during the press conferences, or somebody's walking down the hallway, and all the reporters have their you know their phones out and they're screaming questions, Mr. President, Mr. President. And the question is, um, how does it work in that everyone can hear your question, and so he answers your question from your outlet. However, like the story is kind of public for everyone, whatever he says. So how do you go ahead and how do you make it your story? And, and how does it matter that you're the one that asks the specific question? So on that front, that's a great example because he always signals to us when it's okay for us to start asking questions in those instances. So, you know, he'll say thank you at the end of his remarks. And that's the point where it's acceptable to start asking questions. That's the sign. And so that's going back to what I was saying before. That one is, that is a lot more clear when it's okay. When he's sitting with a world leader, he's at the, he's in the Oval Office, he'll say, thank you. And then you can start asking questions. And if he doesn't want to answer them, he'll say thank you a couple more times. And that means it's time to go. But if he does want to answer them, then he'll just start answering questions. And as you noted, if you're the pooler that's in there, uh, it's, you're not the one on camera. He is. So the public can't see you. So people wouldn't necessarily know that it's your question. Though some White House reporters have very distinct distinct voices and you always know speaking i think that uh the way that you make the story your own is you have a lot of context of the person who's in the room who asked the question you know that you you asked it and you know why and so i do think that other people give you a lot of credit too i've been really thankful that when i'm the person who's pulling my colleagues will tweet and say things like you know 
cooler Fran underscore Chambers like asked this of the president and he gave this great response. So they have been really wonderful about using social media to, to either clip the entire pool report or certain parts of it and credit the person who's in the room so that everyone knows that they were the one who asked this really wonderful question. And, and on that same note, um, you know, when the president gives a press conference or news is happening, we're all kind of, even the reporters at least, are, are at first are hearing kind of all the same information. So my question for you is how do you, how do you get a unique, unique angle on a story? Like how do you say, I'm, this is going to be, this is the Daily Mail angle. How do you do that? Well, sometimes it's not necessarily about having a unique angle because we're a widely read international publication. Mm -hmm. We need to tell the facts and we need to tell the news. People need to be able to come to our news publication from all around the world and in the United States and be able to understand what's going on without having to go somewhere else to find out, okay, now what's a government? shut down and how much of the government is shut down and how many federal workers are furloughed. And so we work very hard to make sure all of that information is in our stories at the Daily Mail. So someone who's just coming to it, because a lot of people aren't following politics as aggressively as those of us who work in the industry are, that they can come to one story and then they can read it and they can get all of the information that they need uh, on the subject in one place. So that's a big thing for us. And I would also say from there, though, just, again, telling the facts, telling the news. But sometimes things can vary. If he gave a very wide-ranging press conference, I'm obviously going to have sometimes very different information and tidbits in my stories than someone at a publication that is more heavily focused on politics for um, Washington, D.C., or maybe even an entertainment publication that what they're really doing is covering entertainment. And maybe Kanye West came up in the press conference, so they would just want to write about Kanye West. And so... I think that everyone has their own niche, and then that's another way that you differentiate. Okay, so speaking of those press conferences I mentioned, when when we see them on TV, we see a lot of the same people up in the front rows. Uh, We hear a lot of, not always, but you know a lot of the same people do get called on from the bigger networks. Can you explain a bit how does that work in terms of how do people get assigned a seat? How often do you get called on and how likely is it for someone from a smaller, not saying that you guys are smaller, but there are smaller places that are, you know, have representatives in there. How do you see that playing out? So in the big news conferences with the president, you're seeing the White House puts out the little plaques to arrange where people can sit. So so the networks are always in the front rows because they do their, their stand-ups and their live shots mm-hmm. immediately afterwards, and they stay right there to do them. And, and so the cameras are trained right there on the president. And then from there, it's up to the White House really to decide where to put people at. Uh, although the one, the more recent one with the president, the day after the election, the White House didn't put out placards for anybody's outlet. So it was like a free for all. And so <laughs> everyone was running. And um, in some ways, that's kind of good because you can improve your position potentially, right? If you're at the front of the line, but in some ways it's bad because if you are at the back of the line and they don't have them sitting out, then you could be stuck in the back of the room and it's hard for the president to see you. But that day, uh, I was very fortunate that I was at the front of the line and was able to get a front and center position. Oh, did you get a question that day? I did. I did get a question that day. That was the day when I asked the president about his conversation with Nancy Pelosi and whether they discussed impeachment. Uh And that's, did she promise him that they wouldn't go after him for that or try to investigate him? Because remember when he suddenly decided to say she should be the next speaker? Yeah. And I was like, what, what did you guys talk about? Like, what made you say you'd support Nancy Pelosi? But then I also asked him about retiring members of Congress like Jeff Flake. And he was like, that one, I can tell you. I retired him. It was me. <laughs> so that, that made a pretty viral video. Uh, people really liked that. So so that so was the day did- after, immediately after how does it feel to, I mean, I know you've now been doing this for four years, so you've asked Barack Obama questions, you've asked President Trump questions. Does, I'm sure the nervousness, uh, you know, it tempers a little bit over time, but when you were first doing it, how did you feel before you raised your hand? Were you, was your heart beating really fast? Was it very nerve wracking? always nervous. It's always nerve wracking. Absolutely. Whether I'm in the press briefing and it's just Sarah Sanders or whoever the White House press secretary is, or if it's, you know, that you're going to be asking the president or a White House official, I think it's always really nerve wracking because I definitely do feel the weight of the fact that I know I'm probably going to get called on. And as you mentioned, other people are probably not going to sometimes. 
And that's just the way that it is. And that being said, though, I know that I need to ask questions that other news outlets and my outlet, everyone needs to know the answer to, just like I was saying on Air Force One. And so sometimes there are even things I'd really like to know the answer to, but that's just not what the major news stories that are going around are. And so you have to ask about the major news of the day. And that can and that can be very nerve-wracking because in my mind, I play out how it's all going to go. And by the way, it never goes the way that I play it out in my mind. Like the president were with the White House press secretary. It always goes some other direction. So I, I try though, I try to say, okay, if they say this, then this is what I'm going to say. So that I'm prepared. But of course, you know, you can never account for what's actually going to happen in the room in the adrenal- adrenaline rush that hits you. And you, no matter how much you practice. Do you, do you generally have a follow-up in mind as well? Yes. Yes, I do. But now because we've had fewer press briefings mm-hmm. than we had before, I now often change the topic. And sometimes I do want to really follow up on the first thing I asked about, but I know that she's probably going to have, it's going to be sometimes a 15 minute press briefing. Not that many people are going to get called on. And if I don't move on to another subject, then we might not get to ask about that subject that day at all. Yeah. And it might be three weeks before we have a press briefing. And so that's what I mean by you really have to pick your positions really carefully and more so now than when Josh Ernest was briefing, for instance, he would do press briefings every day for an hour. No wow. joke, an hour. And so you could ask, oh gosh, you could ask about whatever you wanted, really. But now now that's not the case. You have to be very particular with what you're going to ask and whether you're going to do a follow-up. And do you have any thoughts on, was it, I mean, I, I assume that you would prefer having an hour a day as to this. <laughs> I think, of course, everyone in the journalism industry would prefer if we had uh, more opportunities to ask White House officials questions about news of the day and about stories that we're pursuing. Absolutely. And at the same time, I also think it's really great, though, that in this administration, we've had a lot more opportunities to speak to the president himself. President Obama didn't take questions in Oval Office pool sprays the way that President Trump does. And some days President Trump doesn't either, but a lot of times he does. And you can count on that. And that was not something we had seen before this administration. So I imagine the White House press pool as being a bit like a a club in terms of you guys probably, many of you know each other, you see each other a lot. Is it, I I see it as almost sort of like a back in high school in a way, you know, are there popular (laughs) kids? Are there annoying kids? You know, is there that kind of dynamic at all uh, among the reporters? I think it's like any other workplace, any yeah. other large workplace. But I also think, yeah, of course, there are certain people that you get to become very close with because you travel a lot with those people. For instance, there are people who I was on the Hillary campaign plane with who now cover the White House. And so I've known them for years and we went through a lot together uh, over a year long. But there, at the same time, there are a lot of people who I've gotten to know really well just because they've covered the Trump administration. And that's been so great. I've made so many really great friends on this beat, people who I can count on that if I'm sick or, or just anything else is happening that I can rely on to help me. And I, and I help them as well. And so I've been really grateful for the friendships I've developed on this beat. But so this kind of a job is the kind of thing where you need to have a lot of confidence. That's got to be a big trait to kind of inhabit in order to say, I can do this and I'm going to make this work. Now, you've always seemed like a pretty confident person to me. Um, Where do you get your confidence? See, that's the thing. I think that it's sometimes it's one of those fake it till you make it things, right? Yeah. walk in there and you have to have a lot of confidence. And if you ask, even if you have a really good question, if you don't ask it forcefully with confidence, like, you know, what you're talking about that, that gives, right. That gives some opportunity, uh, for, for them to have a little bit more wiggle room right. and answer your questions. And so you can't do that, but I will, but it was, that's been very, that's been tough for me. So two things, one, I try not to ask questions that are outside my lane, so to speak. If I haven't if I have not researched the topic, if I didn't come in there with some knowledge about it, I try not to ask about it because I don't want to get caught in a back and forth where I end up embarrassing myself because I don't know, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. And so that's, that's number one, like stay in your lane. But number two, I do think it is just walk in there with your head held high because you've earned it. If you're there in that room, you've earned being in that room and do your job. But I do also think that that 
has come with some time for me. I certainly, I certainly was very nervous as you mentioned before, when I first started working there and didn't really feel very confident about those things. And now I do only because I think I've been there for four or five years. And so I'm really, I'm really well aware of the rules now for the most part, except for sometimes, like I said before, when you find yourself in very awkward situations, when you're like, do I, do I shout a question now? I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm sure the longer that you're there, the more you're able to kind of sense and feel things out, even in those situations as well. Yes. It's a gut feeling. And one of my new year's resolutions actually has been to trust my gut more. That's, that's my big year's resolution for 2019. Because as a reporter, I have very good reporting instincts, but sometimes a lack of confidence makes me and other people too, really question those things. And I have found that every single time on this beat, when I have questioned myself, that's when I've made some sort of a misstep. And that's not, doesn't mean a big thing, you know, but just sometimes regrets, you have regrets like, oh gosh, if I had been at this place at this time, I would have gotten this great story. It's always been because I didn't believe in myself. And I didn't trust my gut when those things have happened to me. And Mm -hmm. so my 2019 major New Year's resolution has been to trust my instincts and I need to trust my gut more. Yeah. Sometimes I like to go with the old cliche. What is it? Um, It's better to apologize than ask for permission or something like that in the end. Um, Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, there's a huge contingent in this country of people that don't like the press. They don't like the media. Um, there's obviously been a lot of talk about fake news. Um, what, when, as a reporter, as a journalist yourself, what do you think about that when you hear people trashing the media? I personally can say that I've spent a lot of time at the president's rallies and I've talked to a lot of his supporters and I've had such great conversations with them. And I know other reporters have said the same thing, but me personally, uh, I talk to them and I usually walk away from the conversation having had a really pleasant experience and they have had a pleasant experience too. They like to follow me on Twitter. They, they send me things from time to time to say like, Hey, saw you on TV. Uh, great job, stuff like that. So I think that talking to people in the audience at the president's rallies has been really good because I get to know, I get a better sense, right. Of the issues that they care about and what they want us to pursue as journalists. They feel like we're listening to them, that they're being heard. We're not just these people that are really far off in the distance, just like politicians who they see maybe on television, but they, they don't really know anything about them. And I think it's good for, for them and us to have those opportunities to talk to each other. So I really like going out in the rallies and talking to supporters, whether that's for Hillary Clinton or for the president, and just understanding what Americans care about. Yeah, that's such a good kind of response to a lot of things that have been going on in the country in terms of just once you talk to someone as a person and as an individual, your opinion may change a little bit. Um, It's not the same as it is, you know, in the larger, kind of the larger message you hear from the public. It's like once you talk to someone one-on-one, you kind of get uh, more behind the scenes, more behind the story as to why they think the way that they do. And that's the same reason why politicians knock doors. Right. And they get out and they talk to people too. You can have as many polls as you want telling you what people think or what they want, but that's not a replacement for talking to people one-on-one. Yeah. And I think, you know, politicians, a lot of times they do get a bad rap. People often say they don't like politicians and things like that. But as someone, you know, I've worked on Capitol Hill. You obviously work very closely with a lot of politicians. You recently shared a story on social media about an experience you had with Senator John McCain. Could you share that story with us? Absolutely. So I, about a year ago, you mentioned my trip to Asia Mm -hmm. and we were trying to get our visas for that trip. There's a lot of hoops you have to jump through, just so many hoops. And imagine if you're just going to one country, we were going, I was going to three on that trip. And then I knew that I was going to India to cover Ivanka Trump like a week and a half after the trip. And so I had to get them all at once. There was no opportunity for me to drop my passport off again and again and again. So the problem for me, though, was I was about to leave (laughs) to go on the trip and I still didn't have my passport back from uh, one of the embassies. And so I'm sitting in the lobby of the embassy while the White House staff told me that they were upstairs trying to wrangle it back to get it to me and just to wait for them downstairs. So I'm working on the the floor on my computer. Yes, I'm sitting on the floor in a lobby on my computer. (laughs) Filing, filing. That's what I do all the time. And I look up and I see. Senator John McCain. And I was really surprised 
because this was Viet- this was the Vietnam embassy that I was like at trying to get this this visa, which for anyone who knows um, the late Senator McCain's personal history, to see him at that particular embassy was a little surprising. Yeah, but that was right after the Ken Burns documentary had come out about the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and John McCain and John Kerry had been big parts of it. And so he, I assume he was there with something to do with that. I'm not really sure, but it was around that same exact time. And so I, I went up to him and I asked if I could ask him a few questions for my story because I don't work on Capitol Hill. So it's not that I, I didn't get to see him that often. And I, we knew each other. I had interviewed him for other things, but I, I was like, wow, this is serendipitous. And so he, he answered my questions. And of course, the staffer who was with him wanted to leave. They had somewhere else to be, which is totally understandable. I was making him late. Totally get it. I was making him late to somewhere important. But he really wanted to talk to me for my story. And so he answered my questions. And then after I was done, he asked me if, if I, he could help me get my visa. Did, he, did I want him to go back upstairs and get my passport for me? And I said, no, sir, the White House is on it you know, they've got it. And he told me, well, I know the Vietnamese better than the white house. So I, but I, you know, right. Exactly. Like, what am I supposed to say to that? That's like um, so, so perfect. Yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, I was like, no, sir, they're, they, they're on it. I'm, I'm certain of that. So then he starts giving me sightseeing advice in Vietnam, which again, for anyone who doesn't know, he had been held prisoner of war in Vietnam. So in Hanoi, which is where I was going, because he asked me where I'm going and I sheepishly told him yeah. I'm going to Hanoi. So he starts giving me sightseeing advice and tells me about a boat I should take and how it's really beautiful there. And I was just shocked and amazed, right, that that someone could be so forgiving in their heart to Mm -hmm. tell me what a great country it is and give me sightseeing advice in a city where he had been held prisoner of war. And it really left such a huge, just huge impression on me as a person. Well, then the White House comes back down right after that, I kid you not, and they have my passport. And I told the senator, I'm like, oh my gosh, look, they got my visa. You were my good luck charm. So he insisted that we take a photo together, which I don't do this. Like I, I have met so many really cool people, but you would never believe me because I don't, I, I don't ask for photos. I just don't do it. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes like there are some people, you know, like movie stars, but (laughs) politicians, I'm not like, can I get a selfie? But he insisted that we take a photo. So someone took the photo of us holding up my passport and showing that he was my good luck charm. And so I, I did, you know, I, I had the photo, I held on to it for a really long time, you know, and I would kind of smile and look at it sometimes. But then um, a couple of weeks ago, I saw it on my phone again and decided to, to post the story just because I wanted to share this really great memory about the late senator and his kindness that day. Yeah, that's, I mean, I remember reading that and just thinking, man, that's such a cool story. And from everything that I've heard about John McCain, very representative of who he was as a person. Um, I got to meet him a couple times, but never had like any real conversations with him personally. Um, But yeah, it, it was really fun to hear that story. And then so many others that came out after he passed away. He was, he was truly one of the best people out there. And we knew each other a little because I, you know, interviewed him a couple of times for stories. Sometimes I do go to Capitol Hill for a few things. And I reminded him of some, a story I had done when we had first started talking that day. But it wasn't as if I was a reporter he saw all of the time and therefore, you know, felt like he needed to go out of his way to do something nice for me because he owed me something. He yeah. was just being nice. He was just being nice to me. And I really appreciated that. Is there anyone out there in your profession, journalist, reporter, or maybe someone else that you admire, someone maybe older than you that you would aspire to be like? Oh, gosh, there's a lot. There's a lot of different people. But for the purposes of this podcast, because it's about women, I will say that I just have so much respect for another Kansan who was at the White, was on the White House beat before me. And um, she was there part of the same time as me, but is no longer on the White House beat. And her name is Colleen McCain Nelson, and she was at the Wall Street Journal at the time. And this is just so crazy how life is crazy. I'm from a really small town in Kansas, but she had done her college internship in my small town. We didn't know each other at the time. To the same college and majored in journalism at the same school. And then when I was on the beach, she reached out to me when she realized that we had this very unique connection and offered me advice on the job and continues to offer me advice. But now she is the opinion editor for the Kansas City Star. So she moved back to Kansas uh, after the White House beat. 
And so I just, I never forgot that, how helpful she was to me. And I have tried so hard to to be that kind of a person for other young reporters who have since joined the beat and maybe right don't know some of these things that I was saying before, what to do in certain situations that I it took me years to figure out. I've worked to sit down with them and try and tell them all those things and how they can um, make the most out of their time at the White House. Well, that's something I wanted to ask you, and and you can keep this short, but. What would be some of your advice for a young journalist, maybe someone that's in college now or kind of trying to get their first job? What, what advice might you give someone? Do you think that finding a mentor or a couple mentors who people who you respect like that, who can give you advice on your career is very, very important. People that you can come to when you have a dilemma or just when you need someone to read over your work and give you some honest advice about what you can be doing better and maybe some ticks that you, you haven't doing maybe words you overuse, things like that. Um, they're all things that someone like that can help you with. But I think also working hard. I, I mean, I always go back to working very, very hard. Even if you're in the right place at the right time, if you aren't prepared to be there too, preparation, then you can't take advantage of those opportunities. What celebrity or celebrities would you have dinner with if you could? Um... Ooh, okay. So I really, really like Kerry Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, by the way, okay, Scandal is not what the White House is like. I'm <laughs> sure it's not. <laughs> like at all. But I do, I have to say, I'm a sucker for the, the television show that's off the air now, Scandal. And actually, my husband and I just went and saw her play that's on Broadway right Broadway right now. It's called An American Son. So I, I would have... If I could have dinner with Kerry Washington, if Kerry Washington listens to your podcast, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> have dinner with Kerry Washington. Okay, we're going to tag her at least on Twitter. Maybe she'll. <laughs> hey, you just never know what can happen on Twitter. That's all I'm saying. But <laughs> we met once um, at a White House correspondence dinner. She was she was one of the guests there a couple of years ago, and I had one mission, right? Like I did not want to get stopped as I was going through the room by anyone else in the room. She's like, this was the, she was the one person I wanted to be, and I made my way all the way to where the table where I knew she would be sitting, and I found her, and I did talk to her, and she took a photo with me. Oh, I was going to say, did you ask her for a photo? Was she one of oh, the ones? <laughs> absolutely, yes, we did. And originally, she told me no. And I was looking like really forlorn because my story had been like, you know, oh my gosh, like a huge scandal fan. You know, I covered the White House. Like, yeah. Totally fangirled her. And she was like, oh, I'm not taking photos tonight. And I was like, okay, so disappointed. I like kind of walked away and started talking to someone near me. And then she had um, a security person tap me on the shoulder and they were like, Miss Washington would like to speak to you. And I was like, oh, oh okay. So then I come back and she was like, okay, but don't let anyone else see us take this photo because I said I wasn't taking photos tonight, but like you seem really nice. So we took this photo. It's a terrible selfie because I was so nervous. Do you have it online? Is it public? Um, I don't know if it's a public one, but I'll post it. You know, because of this, I'll post it. I will post it to my Instagram. Um, okay. I was going to say, because I want to put that one and the John McCain one in the show notes. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. I will post it to my Instagram so that people can see that one. Uh, but so, but it's not good. I promise you, it's like not good because she told me to like hurry up, you know, before anyone saw. So it's not a great photo because I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to take this really quick before it changes their mind. Yes. And so, so it's not a great photo. But anyway, listen, this is a fun, fun ending to this story. Like a day later or two days later, I figured out why she wasn't taking photos and why she awkwardly stood behind me in the photo. It's because she hadn't announced publicly yet that she was pregnant. Oh. It's tabloids like two days later that she was pregnant. And I was like, this makes so much more sense because if we had done a side-by-side selfie and I'd put my arm around her waist or something, I would have totally known. She was wearing a black dress, but I would have probably been able to figure it out, right? And so she stood behind me for the photo, like, and she kind of like put her face like, you know, next to mine sort of thing. So she like had her hands on my shoulders or something, but I was not touching her. And oh my gosh. Then, and you know, I, I found two days, two or three days later, she like went public with the fact that she was pregnant. That's so then I was really, I was like, okay, this makes so much more sense now. It was never personal. Right. Cause I always feel like I would feel so, I don't know. You just feel kind of dumb if you ask for a picture with someone and they tell like, you no, no which yeah. that has never happened to me. Um, I do ask for I them if I can, but me either. So, right. So now I felt, I felt so, so much better 
because she still took the photo with me and found a way to make it happen after I told her how much I wanted to take a photo. Yeah, and I mean, it must have felt great to to be like the fact that she actually thought about it and then you know had you come over and actually take it. I mean, she must have uh, really that would have made me feel a lot better if I was you. Yes, right, exactly. So then I felt really special and whatnot. So maybe I'll get to have dinner with her next time. Okay, I know you have a very busy life, but do you, I don't know if you're a much of a reader, but do you have any recent books that you've read that you're really loving, movies or podcasts that you like to listen to, or all of them? Uh, yeah, so I read a lot of news, as you noted, <laughs> reading yes. the news all the time, watching like news programs all the time. But when I go on vacation, I do try to read things that are not political. So um, our friend Karen Tanabe originally wrote this really cool book called The List, but she actually has new books that have come out. And one of them is about to be, I think it's already started filming, but it's about to come out a major motion picture. And so um, I, I believe the book is called The Gilded Years, but the the movie is, is something else. But anyway, the movie has Reese Witherspoon, which is really oh, cool. Wow. I mean, I think Right. Like all of us to be like, I was writing, right. Politics and then wrote some books. And then now Reese Witherspoon staring in my movie. That's the dream. Wow. And that so is the dream. I'm looking forward to reading um, her books over our next vacation and playing catch up before the movie comes out. Okay. I want to read that too. I'm going to add that to my list. Do you listen to podcasts <laughs> at all? I wish I had more time. I wish I had more time when I'm go- honestly, when I'm even walking from place to place, I, I, I try to go- I, I'm so busy all the time. I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, I haven't called my grandma in a couple of days. I should really call my grandma. So often when I'm walking, it's not that I'm listening to podcasts. I'm, I'm calling my family and seeing how they are and checking in. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's really hard to listen to podcasts. And also, I mean, you're constantly trying to file stories. Like that would not go together well. Y- your brain can't do all those things. Right. If I'm at home and if I'm at home, like doing things, I try to put on either the Sunday shows, like watch them on a delay in the panels. I find the panels really fascinating. So I mm-hmm. like to listen to those things when I'm just cleaning around my house or run out. But actually, I really like to listen to Last Week Tonight with John Oliver in yeah. the background too. I think it's really, you know, it's really funny, even though I cover the news and I see it. I, I think his perspective on it, his comedic perspective is really funny. So it's not so much a podcast, but I do like to listen to that in the background every week when I'm picking up around my house. Um, where can we see you I know that you do the Daily Mail TV thing but do you also I know you're occasionally you're doing CNN and things like that yeah so I do a little bit of CNN as you noted a lot of MSNBC and a lot of Fox News so and it's just kind of random whenever they call you there are certain shows I do a lot more than others so I've been doing a lot of Neil a lot of Neil Cavuto's show Uh Uh, I do from the White House for Fox and I do a lot of his show, but I, um, on MSNBC, I do the primetime stuff and I've been doing a lot of, they've just done a reboot of the show up uh-huh. and now it's hosted by David Gura and that's on Saturday and Sundays, Sunday mornings. And it's a full hour. So that's really challenging, but really fun as well. Uh, so it's a full hour. And when I was on most recently, he was out because he just had a, a, a child, which is so exciting for yeah. him and his wife. Yeah. And so I got to help um, do some interviewing and I interviewed Hakeem Jeffries on the show, which was really, which was really awesome and neat. It's a little, it's a, a little different to, to do that versus just shouting questions at someone. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, so, I, so yeah, so I, so I just do a, a little bit, I like to do a little bit of analysis, a little bit of standups, you know, very, very different things, but gives me opportunities across all the networks. Okay. I wanted to ask you one last question that I meant to ask earlier, which is, about President Trump, you know, you see him up close and personal. Is there anything you can tell us that we don't know? <laughs> or anything that is surprising? Or is he really just exactly as he seems? Uh, he's, he's pretty much exactly as he seems. He lets you guys know a lot on his Twitter. Yeah. And you see a lot of those poll sprays. So, but I will also say that sometimes I was talking about earlier Hillary Clinton coming back on the plane and saying just hello and whatnot. He does the same thing on Air Force One. He'll come back sometimes and it's off the record, but he'll come back just to say hello and exchange pleasantries and ask how we're doing. So even if sometimes in the public, it may seem like there's um, a slightly more contentious relationship between the president and the press, he does come back and he does um, ask how everyone is and is there anything we need? And, and he's very kind like that. So he seems like generally like a nice person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we actually know, no, no. Right, right, right. Yeah. Folks 
Um, but yeah, he's, he's always been incredibly nice to me. Okay, cool. I was just wondering, cause you, I mean, I do think that he seems to be the kind of person that is who he is and we, everyone can kind of see that very obviously, but what you see, yeah, what you see is what you get. Absolutely. All right. Well, Fran, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your very, very, very busy schedule. When are you headed back to, uh, to work this week? Yes, I am headed back to work this week uh, over the holidays, actually worked. But then we are finally going on our big vacation after the holidays. So if y'all don't see me anywhere <laughs> after we've now promoted all my television for a little <laughs> bit, it's, it's because we're finally going on a trip. And speaking of never getting any free time or personal time on those trips, we try to pretty much limit it to just um, fun vacation photos. So you can follow me on Instagram for those. Where are you going? Uh, but we're going to Hawaii. We are going oh, to Hawaii. Amazing. Never been. Um, it's going to be really, it's going to be really, really great. And so we, you can imagine why I'm going to try and stay off social media and stay off politics unless I'm, I'm posting photos of the beach or volcano. Yeah. I really would like to do that myself at some point, hopefully soon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, All right. Well, I'm going to make sure everyone that's listening, I'm going to post all the many things we talked about in the show notes. So if you want to connect with Francesca, you can find out her information, all her social media information there. And I'm going to link up some news, uh, news reports that she's in and all the things that she does. So uh, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of insight into the life of a White House press reporter. Thanks for having me. Okay. Wasn't that interesting, everybody? I had a lot of questions that I personally really just wanted to know the answers to. Like, what does it look like inside of Air Force One? And how does the president act when he sees you, the reporters? Um, I wanted to get a little bit of more inside information about, you know, some of the people she interacts with on a regular basis. But as a good reporter does, she wasn't going to give up too much. So anyway, I hope you guys love this conversation. All the things we talked about today will be in the show notes. And if you're loving the podcast, please head over to iTunes and give me a rating and review. We would love that so much to get it up in the new and noteworthy section. Thanks to everyone who's been listening, downloading, sharing. I'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.